I think it's hard to overemphasize this point. Indonesia and India need to create millions of jobs for young people coming into the workplace. Manufacturing is the way to create that level of jobs. You will not create those with the service sector. And both economies are extremely aware of that. So I think recognizing that dilemma and trying to provide a solution around it. So for example, could we think about diversified pricing, pricing greener metals in a different way? Could we think about support for energy storage? There are other ways, encouraging investment in grids, for example, which I think is something that has really come out of the Indonesian experience. This is very necessary. It's just not very glamorous. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Commodities in Asia on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Clara Ferreira Marquez, Managing Editor, Commodities and Energy in Asia at Bloomberg News in Singapore. We'll be discussing how the differences in how China and the West are approaching the energy transition in Asia are playing out, and what's at stake for Asian commodity markets, the energy transition, and global geopolitics. Hello, Clara. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi. I'm really glad that you're able to join us for this series on commodities in Asia. I think you have a really unique point of view. As managing editor for Asia at Bloomberg News, you lead a team of more than 40 people covering commodities and energy from Australia to Pakistan, which gives you a, a truly unique vantage point, and I'm glad you're here to share that with us. On this podcast, we often discuss the energy transition, and there are different energy transitions happening in different parts of the world different transitions and different approaches. And to a great extent, whether we succeed or fail as a planet in meeting the challenge of transitioning to a lower carbon energy system will be decided by what happens in Asia. And the approach offered to countries in Asia by the West is a, a very different approach than that offered by China, with the West at a high level offering financial assistance and China its industrial strength to drive down the cost of renewables, electric vehicles, and critical materials. So I was hoping maybe you could start us off today by talking about the approach you're seeing the West take in Asia towards the energy transition. And is that approach working in Asia? Well, that's a complicated question, but just for context, we're speaking here just as the UN summit begins in Dubai. So tens of thousands of delegates are gathering and going to do lots of different things over the next couple of weeks, take a, a first global stock take on progress towards the Paris Agreement. You know, hopefully we'll see an agreement on renewable energy, tripling renewable energy capacity. And I think that's really where we get to the question about approach. Even if you just look at the need, the investment need that will come with that dramatic increase in renewable energy. If you look 2022, we invested more than $500 billion, about $500 billion in renewable energy. We need to double that every year to 2030. So we need to basically be investing 1.2 trillion every year. The problem, however, is much of that investment is obviously concentrated in the West. It's concentrated in developed markets. It's also concentrated in 
the energy generation rather than in these all these other bits and pieces that are required and particularly required in developing nations. So that's grids, that's batteries, that's dealing with the use of renewables in industrial uh, or in manufacturing in particular. The JETP, so these are the Just Energy Transition Partnerships, have uh, been highlighted particularly last year. And it will be very interesting to see what comes of that in COP because I think that's quite indicative of the Western approach, as you say. So this idea that money from developed nations can help these developing nations or these often middle-income countries, actually, if you think about Indonesia, Vietnam, help them invest in renewable energy, help them invest in grid and infrastructures, wean them off coal and help them manage the just transition. In reality, if we look at the Indonesian experience, it has been very, very difficult. The only part that has really worked is increasing renewable investment, sort of the high IRR, the high NPV part, which to be honest would probably have happened without the JEPI. So it's been a very interesting example of where the trouble really sits. It sits in the availability of capital, it sits in the willingness and the ability of financing entities to take on some of these risks. And it sits with some real problems around data. And in Indonesia, that's around coal for industrial use. So what we call captive coal, off-grid coal. It's difficult to even quantify that. And that's a vast amount, not only of what Indonesia already has today in terms of coal-fired power generation, it's about a fifth, but it's 50% of the new additions that will come. So I think the JetP is a really good example of why it's very difficult to sort of think of a switch that the West can flip by just providing this money as if it all sort of comes in one in one big block. In fact, we realize that the different types of money, whether it's grants or the concessional, where it goes, all of that is highly contentious. And then there are parts of the economy, specifically manufacturing, which are very, very difficult. And if you look at all of these nations, that's vital because they are adding, they need to add a lot of jobs and manufacturing is crucial to that which gets us to China's approach, which really has been, as you say, to support the mineral processing part of the energy transition. And in Indonesia, in particular, just to go back to that example, I think it's it's been very difficult because a lot of that is coal-fired. So on the one hand, you are helping Indonesia use their low-grade nickel to produce something that could be used in batteries, but you're using coal to do so. So uh, a very difficult compromise there. You bring up the difference in the Chinese approach, and often what we hear coming out of China is the great strides they're making in producing solar, producing renewable. You know, we had Septian Seto on from Indonesia talking about how the Chinese technology in nickel production is about a decade ahead of what's available from the West. And I'm curious, when you look at the strides China's making, how big of an impact is that having on how others in Asia are thinking about making their energy transition? There's two questions in that, I think, because there are two different kinds of technology. So if you look at what they've done in processing, and in Indonesia in particular, that's the ability to use low-grade nickel to eventually produce something that you can use for your batteries. It's been revolutionary for Indonesia in terms of sort of the economic, uh, immediate cash economic benefits. Obviously, there's also huge costs that come with it. That's one of the things that China has done. It's exporting a lot of these highly polluting industries. So that's nickel processing. It's also aluminium. But they have also dramatically uh, reduced the cost of renewable energy. So the, the generation, the solar panels in particular. And I think if you look at what they're doing domestically, and in particular this week, we've just been assessing, uh, we just published a, an assessment of China's desert solar. So that's this big push that uh, Xi Jinping announced in 2021, and it wasn't really clear how far they'd got. 
And what we found is that the amount of solar and wind that's being deployed in desert and remote areas is absolutely gigantic. So, you know, to the point that they they could actually reach their 2030 emissions target early. So where the overall, the, the program targets 455 gigawatts, which is basically the combined renewable energy capacity of Canada, Japan, Germany, and France. It's the whole of India uh, in power terms. So, yeah, I think it, at the same time, of course, they're still adding coal. So, yeah, there is that. Right. No, it's really staggering. And I'm curious, often we hear when you scale solar renewables at that level, the hope, of course, is that not only do you have the power to supply in a lower carbon way, but you drive down the cost of creating it in the future. How much has that been happening with what China's doing? Are we seeing even further declines in the cost of installing solar, wind, other renewables? So in some countries, yes. In other countries, no. And that's because of policy constraints. So there are policy constraints in a lot of these economies that support fossil fuels. They may be direct subsidies. They may be infrastructure subsidies. So for example, it's difficult if you build a solar power plant to sell back to the grid. You may not be able to get the price you want. You may not be able to guarantee a certain price. So as an investor, that makes it quite tricky. And if you look at Indonesia and, and Vietnam, that has been that has been the case. So I think that's one of the one of the really big ones, even though the actual solar panels are cheaper, the infrastructure around them is actually still quite challenging. I think the real trick will be the next stage. And so that would be battery storage. So energy storage, because even China, you can see that at this sort of level, record levels of renewable deployment, we're going to get to the stage where the grid can no longer handle that and it's getting wasted. So they will need to really scale up energy storage. And if they can bring those costs down, that will really have an enormous impact, not only on China, but on countries like Indonesia and India. So where do you see the next steps for China and the West in terms of trying to to influence the energy transition in Asia? Is it China going forward with battery storage, the West trying to figure out what it's doing on on aid? What are the next steps, do you think? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I have a very good specific answer for you. I would say that both sides will continue to do their thing. They will. You will see the West. The jet peas have been perhaps bumpier than we might have liked. The South African one, extremely bumpy. Indonesia, quite bumpy, but at least they still exist. And, you know, the Vietnamese one was supposed to be presented this morning, the investment plan. So, you know, some it is the dialogue is still there. And I think a few years ago, we would not have thought that we would be having these conversations with middle income countries. As for China, they will continue to their deployment. The question marks then are geopolitical ones. Will China be allowed to continue to sell these to the West at the rate that they have? Will you have a doubling up of manufacturing, a doubling up of minerals, of mining, of processing, I think that's really where you could see some significant costs added and some real impact on on the speed of the transition. Yeah, I want to come back to the geopolitics in a second. But first, I wanted to ask you a question on the economics. There's a lot of ambiguity, maybe a little less clarity than even normal when people try to assess the state of the economy in China right now. And I'm curious from your vantage point, What's your assessment of what's happening in the Chinese economy? <laughs> that is a big question. <laughs> the Chinese economy quite clearly has not recovered from the COVID pandemic and from the multiple years of being closed off from the world at the speed that they expected and, and that a lot of people outside China expected. You can see today with manufacturing figures, it's not great. You look at consumption by any metric, it's not great. Whether you look at things like pork, 
So pork obviously being the most consumed meat in China, it's a pretty good gauge. There's deflation there. If you look at diesel, I mean, all of these point to not exactly a drop, but certainly not a ramping up at the dramatic speed that the world might have expected. We are seeing some quite significant moves from the Chinese government in terms of trying to stimulate, trying to get the economy going, but they are in a bit of a bind. And if you look at, I think iron ore is a really good example of this. So the iron ore price, somewhere around 120, it's gone up to 130. These are pretty high prices considering where the Chinese economy is. And so you have the evidence that the Chinese, the Chinese government rather is trying to stimulate the property markets, trying to get banks to lend into the property market, to get that moving again. But at the same time, it's calling in commodities traders to say, no speculation, please. Let's keep keep the price down, keep a lid on the price. So they really are a little bit stuck there for, for input prices. Overall, I think pretty clearly it is not going the way they intended, but they are quite constrained in terms of what they can do in the short term, at least. And turning to the geopolitics, maybe this is because I, I've been catching up on watching the series For All Mankind. But part of it is, I, I wonder, like, are there elements of a, a space race kind of aspect here where China's pushing ahead in a lot of these energy transition with the solar, with the renewable, as you said, installing, you know, the equivalent of Canada, Japan, and other countries' power grids, the US trying to, with its IRA, trying to influence the direction that this takes. I mean, it seems like there's a lot at stake here in terms of approaches and systems and how that plays into geopolitics. And so I was curious, you know, we have big elections coming up in India and Indonesia. What's at stake here in terms of influence throughout the world between, say, the US and China? Okay, so I think when you when you think about the geopolitics of the sort of energy transition race, let's call it that, I think it's actually quite good for climate in theory, right? Because everyone should be pushing to to do this faster and getting more people manufacturing, you should be bringing costs down. In reality, that may not be what happens because you have a doubling up of supply chains, right? And a doubling up of, well, particularly of the supply chains, which really will mean, for example, that you might have to mine for minerals in somewhere in the US where or process them in a place that isn't particularly economically viable. In terms of the elections, I mean, it really is an enormous year for elections next year and not just in Asia. But if you look at so you the UK, lots of the US, so we'll have plenty to keep us entertained in 2024. But in Asia, you have, apart from Taiwan, it's also quite significant. We will have Indonesia and India. And I think those are quite interesting elections to watch from a climate perspective. In both countries, to a greater or less degree, climate will figure significantly in the election. It's not exactly a kitchen table issue, but it is a significant one. So if you look at India, it's been quite an important part of the sort of Modi presentation, this big push into solar, the big push into renewables, an idea that it would help make India a manufacturing sector, sort of catch up with China on the manufacturing front. India has had some success, perhaps not quite as much as Modi might have liked, and a lot of the infrastructure, the grids remain very problematic, still have a lot of coal. India is still pushing back on you know, efforts to reduce unabated coal. So that will be an interesting one for India. If, if we do see a continuation of the Modi government, will they, for example, support efforts to reduce methane? Will they take a more significant steps to increase battery storage, increase energy storage to allow this renewable energy deployment to really take hold? Indonesia is an even more interesting one because the mineral processing push that we talked about earlier, this effort to use the mineral base that Indonesia has to leverage that to build a manufacturing sector, a really significant manufacturing sector to push the country into the EV supply chain. 
that has really been a core of the sort of developmental economics of the Jokowi economics. So Joko Widodo is the president, he's known as Jokowi, and this has been absolutely central. They call it downstreaming, sort of, I guess, moving both up and down the chain, depending on how you describe it. Anyway, they call it downstreaming, and it, it's something that's really caught on. And he has also signed the JEPI. So he's done these two things that really seek to make it a greener economy. Can this continue? Quite possibly, but for the moment, Indonesia has largely seen the benefits. They haven't yet had to deal with the costs, either environmental or otherwise. That will be for the next administration. And Indonesia has this very complicated year through 2024 because the elections are early in the year. The president doesn't actually take office until the autumn. So, you know, we don't have a lot of years to 2030. So losing a whole year to political machinations, it means there'll be very little legislation passed, possibly none. That is a little troubling for the rest of the world. Right. And of course, there are other geopolitical issues at play as well that aren't necessarily you know, rooted in the energy transition. We've had the redirection of Russian commodities to Asia following the sanctions imposed by Western countries in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm curious, how is that changing the dynamics of the commodity markets in Asia? Gosh, a lot. I would split that into two. So I think on the first, I'd think about it as how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed China's approach, in particular to food and energy security. Now, quite clearly, these have been a focus for China for quite a long time, right? It's not new. You know, the, the, she has been talking about food security since he came to power. It was a focus for China even before that. I think uh, successive governments have been extremely aware that China has, you know, 1.3, 1.4 billion people, but not enough arable land and importantly, not enough water. So they're very aware of that. They're aware that they do not have enough of their own oil, enough of their own gas to manage. So there has been an increased emphasis in that after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because where China has seen vulnerability is also on the economic front, right? It remains very intertwined. It receives a lot of these materials by sea. So that's a, a point of vulnerability. And it looks at how Russia actually did a pretty good job of insulating itself economically. And Russia is a large food producer, also a large hydrocarbon producer. So it's in a much better position. So we have seen, even today, there was an article, a fresh article from Xi Jinping on the quality of Chinese soil and dealing with decimated, polluted soil, basically, which is a huge issue for China, lots of heavy metal in the soil, and then energy security. And that's also been about diversification. So it's about diversification of supply for a lot of what China has to import, for example, soybean. It's also about dramatically increasing domestic production, even at even if it's not necessarily cost-effective. So that's on the one side. On the other, I would say the big change has been Russia turning east. So Russia, obviously, Europe cut off. It had to turn the other way. This has been easier for some commodities than for others. For oil, relatively, until the price cap came in. For gas, much, much more complicated because the entire infrastructure, as we well know, was turning west it does not exist to the east, so they've had to. Um, they're having to deal with that now. Gas exports and gas as a percentage of, of the Russian government's revenue has, has dropped very, very significantly. What that has meant is that flows have changed. So we have seen, for example, Russia becoming not only the largest. Um, so China is now the largest importer of fossil fuels from Russia, but also India has emerged as a very large buyer of Russian fossil fuels, and it wasn't before the war. It was really uh, it bought its crude largely from Saudi, from other from Iraq. And now it's, uh, now it's really all about Russia, which does put India in a bit of a tricky situation because we're not always clear that it's buying below the cap at certain price points during the year. But really, we have seen a very significant shift 
towards these two nations in particular. I think that's really where where you you're both of them taking advantage essentially of, of discounted oil. Right. And returning to your first point about maybe China taking some lessons from Russia and its ability to withstand sanctions and the need to be a little bit more secure in your own commodity energy supply. You know, one of the the things that was used to impose sanctions was the strength of of the US dollar standing as the world's reserve currency, access to the Fed SWIFT system. And I'm curious, how is the the role of the US dollar in being able to impose sanctions on Russia? How has that affected the view of the dollar, if at all, for commodities trading in Asia? I think it's something we've all been watching for a long time. And I think many people have declared the death of the dollar in commodities trading. And it's quite hard to see that in practice. What I would, you know, especially in percentage terms, if you look in percentage terms, you know, it's it's still traded in the dollar. Clearly, it's the overwhelming majority. What we have seen this year is deals in alternative currencies. This year and last year, I'd say, but in particular this year. So since the price cap kicked in, a lot more sort of digested We've seen deals in dirhams, so in particular going into India, so India buying crude in dirhams and in yuan. The interesting thing as well is we've not just seen yuan trades between China and Russia, also bilateral. We've seen other countries using the yuan, often under pressure from Russia. They don't want to use the ruble. Russia doesn't want to use, for example, the rupee. So there's a search for alternative currencies. Russia itself is using the yuan a lot more. You can see that in foreign exchange trading. We can see that in even individual metals trades. It's still small, but it it is emerging. The issue for China, of course, is it cannot make the yuan the sort of currency that it would like. It cannot get that sort of clout without allowing freedoms that it doesn't want to allow. So it's a little bit stuck here. You cannot have your cake and eat it. So it is trying as much as possible to expand in futures markets, for example, to encourage the use of yuan in these trades as a sort of friendly South-South currency. But it is not easy. Countries are quite resistant because of the obvious risk that it that it brings. And I wanted to come back to a little bit of where we began this conversation with the, the energy transition. Clearly, we now have COP28 is underway. What do you expect out of this COP? Well, I think the one thing to know from multiple COPs is to manage your expectations. You know, COPs don't solve problems. They are ultimately incremental. I think it would be fantastic to see, and I hope to see, some positive movement on renewable energy, some positive movement on methane, some positive movement perhaps even on fossil fuels, and certainly some positive movement on loss and damage, which has been you know, very, very difficult to get to this point. Where I would, but perhaps it's less realistic, where I would like to see discussion is around the effective use of finance. So how do we actually get finance provided by the developed world to be going to the right places and to have the right sort of money? So it's not very useful to say we sign a deal and it's $21.5 billion, but then not actually tell us exactly how that splits down, how exactly you would like it deployed, and where exactly it's coming from. Because a lot of these financial institutions who are supposed to be crowded in still have, for example, cold exclusion policies. They still have fiduciary duties to their shareholders. So I think a little bit more nuance around the financial conversation and recognizing that this is a tiny, tiny amount of what the world needs. Right. And thinking about what the world needs, you know, both on the financial side, on, you know, being able to do the transition in a cleaner way. Uh, You brought up before aluminum, nickel, some of these things that are produced. What are some of the issues 
surrounding how we do the transition in addition to the financial that you think should be the focus of some discussions, even if they're, they're not currently? Well, I think in the industrial uh, industrial issue is, is a big one because I think there is an expectation, and this is very much how it's perceived from the middle-income countries in Asia, that you're basically told to get rid of coal. But of course, they will tell you, well, A, what am I supposed to use for generation? Um, because if you look at these countries, often the grids are not built properly, so or there are no grids, or the grids are old, or yeah, more often than not, they simply don't exist. So coal is a much easier, so not to defend it, but it is just simply has been historically easier. The problem then is to recognize that they have these dilemmas. They have to provide power generation. You know, a lot of people still living in energy poverty or without access to electricity at all. You want to develop your economy. You want to create a manufacturing sector. And I think it's hard to overemphasize this point. Indonesia and India need to create millions of jobs for young people coming into the workplace. Manufacturing is the way to create that level of jobs. You will not create those with the service sector. And both economies are extremely aware of that. So I think recognizing that dilemma and trying to provide a solution around it. So for example, could we think about diversified pricing, pricing greener metals in a different way? Could we think about support for energy storage? There are other ways, encouraging investment in grids, for example, which I think is something that has really come out of the Indonesian experience. This is very necessary. It's just not very glamorous. And I, first, I want to thank you for a great conversation. Then I have one more question that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is you're a journalist, you're the managing editor for Bloomberg News. I was curious, you, you've told us a lot, so maybe the answer is already in here, but I'd love to know as we get to the end of 2023 and look forward to 2024, what are some of the stories that you think we'll need to be paying attention to and following in the next year? And are there any little nuggets, any signposts you're looking for that would let us know if we're on the road to success or failure? Hmm. Okay. So the things that I am looking forward to reading about and writing about in 2024, I'm very interested in the whole Russian shift to the East, as we discussed earlier, so how sanctions enforcement will change not only for Russia, also for Iran, but in particular for Russia, how that will change, how that will continue to build these new networks, the Dark Fleet, for example, that obviously has been a huge transformation, hundreds of ships. And in particular, in my part of the world, so I sit in Southeast Asia, it's obviously been very, very significant here. A lot of the transshipping is happening here. I look for that. I'm very interested in energy storage. We're really looking to see how China approaches that problem and the scale at which they approach that problem and what that will mean for the rest of the world. We do look at food security. This year has been a very difficult year from a food protectionism point of view. I know we didn't really go into that side of the commodity space, but if you look at things like rice, sugar, areas where India, for example, to deal with structural problems in its agriculture has had to put in place these export curbs. We do have more nationalism coming in. We see that even in the metal sector. So a lot of that feeds through into food, so food security and how countries deal with that, in particular how China deals with that. I think will be very, very significant. Also, India, of course, is a huge food exporter. So what happens with them will determine how we all feed ourselves and in particular how some of the major importing nations in Africa, so some of the most vulnerable, feed themselves. So that's uh, another one for us. But yes, all of the same, all of the same issues continue into, into 2024 and uh, all these elections, as you said earlier. Well, look forward to following your writing on it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciated your insights and perspectives. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks again to Clara Ferreira Marquez, Managing Editor, Commodities and Energy in Asia at Bloomberg News in Singapore. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our series, Commodities in Asia. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week. 